John 13, believe it or not, sermon number 128, Pastor Butler has caught up to me, he told me yesterday on the phone, and he started like five years after I did, I think. He's preached through the Gospel of John before, I I never have, he's sharper than I am, so I'm a little dull, I have to go slow, but John chapter 13, if you know anything about the Gospel of John, you know this is one of those really precious sections Uh, that we prize. Some people have called it the upper room discourse because it appears that they're in an upper room, a room probably second story, we're not sure, in Jerusalem. Uh, Others have called it the farewell discourse because our Lord is turning from public ministry, John 1 through John 12, now preparing his disciples for his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then current session. Wonderful words here. I already read John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this is a a, a hinge that we just saw I should stick to my notes, huh? We're going from and to something. That's what I mean by hinge. We're going from public ministry, public deeds, to Jesus and the disciples alone, preparing them for what's going to happen the next day. Do you realize that John 13, through the end of the book, chapter 21, deals with about 40, less than 48 hours, uh, or about 48 hours, maybe a little more than that, 40... 60 hours or so of the last few days, two or three days of our Lord's life. So this is concentrated uh, information here, preparing in verses, chapters 13 through 17, preparing the disciples to carry on the ministry that Jesus began. Though there are many instructive words by our Lord in this section, the first thing he does is quite startling. This is that section where he washes his disciples' feet. Some have called this an enacted parable. What does that mean? I'll discuss that a little later. Actually, I'll tell you what it means. It means that Jesus' actions in the washing of the disciples' feet are actually symbolic, signifying something other than the action of mere foot washing. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. The Son of God incarnate can act in such a way as to teach us something about his identity and ministry, and that's what's happening here. This becomes clear as we work our way through the text. So I'm going to read a large section of John 13, the first 20 verses if you want to follow along. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, which I will take this as, supper being, um, uh, excuse me, made. Because if you, as you'll see later on, The supper's not over, but it's prepared. And supper being fully prepared, the devil, uh, I hate this part of it, 
having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? In other words, you shouldn't be doing this. Most of us know Peter well enough. Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Very interesting. So Jesus does some things that they didn't totally get when he did them, and yet he promises you're going to know more about this after this at some point. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. We're not going to get this far in the exposition, but it's so hard not to say, Peter, that, why don't you just shut up? You've got to appreciate his zeal. You know, it's, it's in other passages, and we'll, we'll see Peter again toward the end of the gospel doing similar things. You've got to appreciate his zeal. I don't think it came from a wicked motive. It was zeal without knowledge, though. He should add the knowledge that sometimes you just need to button your lips and let things transpire. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Very interesting. But it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, the greater, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, the less, also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know him whom I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Now, most versions that say I am he, but it's just I am, one of those I am statements again. This is weird again. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. John chapter 13, the first 20 verses. 
I imagine it's going to take about five years to get through that section. I was actually hoping at first to get through about 17 verses, and then I said, no, 11 verses, uh, and then five verses, but we're only going to get through one word today. Now. No. First five verses is what I'd like to look at this morning. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Now, there's more to the washing of the feet than we're going to cover, but we'll get there. But I want to focus on the first five verses. So note first, when this occurred, when this washing of the feet occurred, and what Jesus knew and did in light of what he knew. That's verse one. So note first, when this occurred, so we're looking at a when statement, now before the feast of the Passover, and what Jesus knew and what Jesus did in light of what he knew. First one again, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So note the first words, now before the feast of the Passover. These words mean before eating the feast, the festive meal connected to the Passover. That's what I think it means there. They hadn't started it. They're getting ready to start it. And we'll talk about what it is. Um, And before they ate it, Jesus acts, an act of love, by the way of washing their feet. That our Lord died on Passover Friday is important in itself. So it's most likely, this is Thursday. Passover, you know, we are all, none of us are Jews. We weren't raised in the synagogues. Um, But most of us as Christians have heard that word before, Passover. If you read the Old Testament, you know it occurs in the book of Genesis. Passover was a memorial festival instituted by Yahweh for ancient Israel that recalled God's salvation of ancient Israel from Egyptian bondage. It's very important that this is around Passover. The ancient people were told to slaughter a lamb without blemish. What do you think that ultimately pointed to? and put some of its blood on their doors as a sign of that home being passed over by divine judgment, even though they didn't... Well, anyway, God saved ancient Israel while judging the Egyptians, and this great act of God signified a greater act of God to come in the future. You say, well... How do you get all that out of Exodus 12 or whatever? Well, I don't. I read the entire Bible. For instance, Paul tells us what what Passover ultimately signified in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. See? There's a connection between the sacrifice of Christ and this festival called Passover and the events that occurred way back when. By the way, events that God causes can be pregnant, full of meaning, the meaning of which we don't really know fully until more revelation comes. Isn't that amazing? I didn't make it up. It's the way the Bible unfolds. 
By the way, Peter does this as well. He says, knowing that you were not, re-, this is 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You see what I'm doing now? Passover in the Gospel of John. Went back to Exodus, and now I'm telling you the apostles interpreted Passover Christologically as well. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with, here's the language, the precious, my grandson, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Some of you remember his father in public worship. But with the precious blood of Christ, blood, Passover, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What did the lamb without blemish and without spot way back when the Passover was first instituted, what did it ultimately point to? Jesus. The reality to which... The symbol points, follows the symbol. The symbol's first, then there's a reality in the future. The symbol was the sacrificial lamb without blemish. The reality to which it pointed is our Lord. It's very hard for me not to go, you know what? This thingy about substitutionary atonement, it actually predates the Passover. God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Genesis 22, but I digress. So that's the time of it when this festival was going on. It lasted about seven days. And it's not like accidental that Jesus happens to die on Passover Friday. But let's keep digging into verse 1 because there's more to it. Good readers of John's gospel know that Jesus spoke about his hour before we read these words in verse 1, knowing that his hour had come. Remember back, if you can, 127 sermons, um, Jesus, throughout the gospel of John, my hour has not come, my hour has not yet, my hour has not come, my hour has not yet, knowing that his hour had come. He knew when his hour was not, and he knew when his hour was. It's very mysterious, because we think, well, I don't know when my death's going to happen. Matter of fact, he said weirder things about his death. No one can take my life from me. I give it up, and I'll take it back. But now he knows. Jesus knew that his hour had come... In, specific, in particular, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Did Jesus believe in the ascension of the incarnate Son of God? Yes. Just as our Lord knew when his hour had not arrived, now he knows the time has come to depart from this world to the Father. He knew he would be killed. He knew he would rise from the dead. He knew he would ascend into heaven. Jesus also tells us, or John also tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. His own are those given to him to save in this context. I don't think exclusively the disciples, but primarily the disciples in this case. This refers first to the disciples who were present in the room. He loved them to the end. I think that refers to the fact that he loved them to the end of his earthly ministry, certainly after, but everything he's doing is an act of love for disciples, is an act coming out of a desire to secure the best possible good for the ones loved. Aren't you glad Jesus loves sinners? He's going to secure the best possible good. Is that even the right way to say it? Probably not. But what is the best possible good for sinners? To have their sins forgiven and a title to glory, to be saved from that. Not just saved from the bondage of a political oppressor, Pharaoh, but transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, Colossians chapter 1. But let's look at verse 2, note secondly, in verse 2, John introduces something about one of the disciples. And supper being ended, the devil, uh, supper being completed, made, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The words, and supper being ended, are best understood as the meal was made. Probably made by the disciples as well. I say this because the meal continues in verse 26. You know, I didn't read that. I wanted to show you that. Verse 26 Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Okay, so the meal is still going on down there in verse 26. We'll come back to Judas in another sermon. There's all kinds of questions here. Like, what? The devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot? How does he do that? We'll come back there in the future. Notice verse 3 that John tells us something else Jesus knew at this time. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. I don't know about you, but to me, these are strange words. This week, a friend of mine was asking me about my sermons on John 12. And now is the judgment of this world. And now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. I didn't realize I preached like eight sermons on that one verse. He's, 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 he's in Colossians 2, where Eddie read this morning about the principalities and powers being subjected to Christ. And he rules over them now and all that stuff. And somehow it's connected to his death. And he said, which sermon should I listen to? You preached eight of them. Um, he had come from God and was going to God. Strange words. My friend told me, this is why I didn't preach the gospel of John, because there's too many strange words in it. So he preached Leviticus instead of the gospel of John. And I said, so Leviticus is easy compared to the gospel of John? He said, believe me, it is. 
So what does John 12, 31 mean? I said, you know, go listen to the sermon, whatever sermon I told him. But these are strange words too. There are a lot of strange words in the Gospel of John. Let me say this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, this had given all things into his hands, could refer to the decree of God, right? It could be referring to that which God decreed and which Jesus would have upon his resurrection. All authority has been given unto me both in heaven and earth, Matthew 28, 19. But also, this could refer to its, the execution of the decree in time. I say this because our Lord gave clues as to his unique identity as the incarnate Son of God during his earthly ministry. Hush, be still. Remember that? He had authority over the waves and the winds. Who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? If you read the Psalms, Yahweh causes winds and waves to obey him. Strange words here. He had authority as God the Son from eternity. But he had a special endowment of authority conferred upon him as God the Son become man, the God-man, the last Adam. These words are a pre-echo of Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. But notice also, notice also in verse 3, more strange words. Thank you, John. And that he had come from God and was going to God. He had come from God and was going to God. So this is the language of descent and ascent, right? Descent, he had come from God. Ascent, he's going to God. This language is not unique to Jesus. Um, the Old Testament speaks about God descending. For example, listen to Psalm 144, verse 5. It says this, Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Come down. Descend. Here's Isaiah 64, 1. It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Come down, descend. What does that mean in the Old Testament? In these two texts, and there are other texts. You're not omnipresent, so relocate your presence from heaven to earth. We don't want to say that. We don't want to take these words as if God were able to relocate from heaven to earth. If God were able to relocate, go from one place to another, he would be finite, right? He would not be an infinitely present being in all space and time. We would deny his omnipotence if we took it that way. So it's not like these prayers, these Isaiah text and the Psalm text, not like these prayers are making God to be present where he isn't, or asking God to be present. God, come down. Be present where you're not present. You think that's what these prayers are? I don't think so. 
Where can I go from your presence? The psalmist says, nowhere. But they mean something, right? Come down has to mean something. It must mean we know you're already present, but we're going we're gonna to use language that we can kind of connect with because we're creatures. We want you to manifest your presence in a different way than it's being manifested. So what does it mean when John says he had come from God and was going to God? Descent and ascent. Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God. What does that mean? I think it means this, his incarnation. I think it means his becoming flesh. I think it means his assuming our nature. I think it means his becoming present in a new way. I've said that before. I have come down from heaven. You remember that? John 6. That sounds like a relocation. Well, creatures can relocate, go from one place to another. Did Jesus have pre-incarnate flesh? We're not heretics. No. Did this Son of God, according to his divine nature, go from a place to a place? We don't want to do that either, right? We're going, no. Was the Son of God present before becoming incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Yes. As God or man? As God. So the incarnation is him, him coming down, that is manifesting in his presence in a very new and startling way through a human nature. So we can say this, he who created the vast skies above and all their luminary hosts came down from heaven, manifested himself in a new way. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The son who had come from God signifies his becoming man without ceasing to be God, the son. His going to God signifies the son of God, the son of God incarnates ascension to heaven according to his human nature for his divine nature cannot move from one place to another, right? When we say the Son of God ascended to heaven, are we saying the divine nature went from and to? We're saying no, only creatures can go from and to. So we have to say that he ascended according to his human nature. Listen to J.C. Ryle, who quotes somebody else. I, these are wonderful words. Jesus came from God not leaving him and went to God not leaving us. And lo, I am with you always. And then he ascended to heaven. You just said I'm with you always and you left us. Well, if we distinguish in the one person, the two natures, we can say, Jesus left us and Jesus didn't leave us. Let me quote that again. Jesus came from God, not leaving him, and went to God, not leaving us. Let me say it again. It's getting good responses. The only problem with that is I didn't write it. So much 
for that. Recall these mysterious words of our Lord spoken when he was on the earth. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. What? How could the Son of Man be in heaven and on earth at the same time? How can he be on the earth and in heaven at the same time? How can he be in heaven and yet be on the earth speaking and saying that he's in heaven, but he's on earth? The answer is this. He must have a form of existence beyond his flesh. You ever heard that before? A form of existence beyond the flesh. You have heard it because I've used the language before. That's the good news. I've used it before. Remember that really weird Latin-sounding extra-Calvinisticum? You ever heard of that? The extra-Calvinisticum. I went to church today. What did you learn about extra-Calvinisticum? It's like expialidocious? Or what is that? Extra, above or beyond... They called it the extra-Calvinisticum because Calvin was debating Lutherans about the presence of Christ in the supper. And Calvin said, extra, above, beyond the flesh, the Son of God exists. And he can be present at the supper according to not his human nature, which is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but according to his divine nature. Why? Because he, he exists extra, above, outside the flesh. He is God the Son, who assumed a human nature. He is one person with two natures. The flesh is local and it's finite. The divine nature is ubiquitous, infinite, unbounded, omnipresent. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. In other words, when when we read these words in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, we we can conclude this. Our Our Lord knew that he was the incarnate Son of God. Matter of fact, he knew it way before these words in John 13 the Son of Man, who is in heaven, John 3, 13. Verses 4 and 5, notice what Jesus did. Okay, that's all setting up to now Jesus does something. He rose from supper laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Listen to the words of Sinclair Ferguson. I I don't have a Scottish accent. Even when I disagree with Sinclair, I I love to hear him because, you know, it's a Scottish accent. 
I had a friend who used to say that um, guys with Scottish accents can preach heresy, and we Americans still think it's good because we love the accent. Um, here's what he says. Listen, listen to these words. Clearly, something deeper is going on here than Jesus merely removing dust and dirt. He is acting out a parable of the gospel, an enacted parable. Remember I said that? Showing them by means of a dramatic sign both who he is and what he has come to do. Here, in the foot washing, he reveals both his person and his work, both his identity and the purpose of his ministry. Lessons from the Upper Room, page 10. So in this scene, two things are happening. Happening: One, Jesus acts. And two, Jesus' actions are teaching tools. Okay? So he acts, he does something, he does a deed, but the act, the deed that he does, is actually a teaching tool. A deed, an act, can signify other real things. That's kind of philosophical, you know. A deed or an act can signify something else. A sign can signify something else. Even the sign that says Los Angeles 50 miles or whatever isn't Los Angeles. The sign, right? But it's signifying something. There are 50 what we call miles between that sign and the city limits of Los Angeles. The sign is not the thing signified, but signs can signify. So can deeds, acts. You've probably heard me say, we have word revelation, Old and New Testament, right? But the Old and New Testament, you know what they record for us? Deeds, acts of God that signify wonderful things. Like the Exodus. So here we have two things happening. He's acting, and these actions are actually teaching tools. His acts display a humble servant's heart. It's like, this is the king of glory. This is the Lord of glory. This is the incarnate son of God. What is he doing washing their feet? His actions point beyond themselves to his incarnation and his service or ministry. Uh, Ferguson called this a dramatic sign, which means an acted out teaching tool, a dramatic sign. Jesus acts, and his acts point to a greater act. See, the foot washing incident isn't an end in and of itself. You know, some throughout history, very minor uh, uh, number of people have taken foot washing as like the Lord's Supper and baptism. I think that's not what's going on here. It's not a sin to wash somebody's feet. You can do that. It's fine. There's more going on here, though, than, than just that. This is a dramatic sign. 
an acted-out teaching tool. Our Lord acts, and his acts point to a greater act. Now, what's in the background here? Besides the Passover, the entirety of the Old Testament, by the way, is in the background, right? Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you believe me, because he wrote about me. The law, the prophets, and the writings, the three parts of the Hebrew Old Testament, all spoke about the sufferings and the glory of Christ. The disciples were all Jews. They certainly had a knowledge of the Old Testament. Our Lord dipped into the Old Testament over and over and over again, showing that it was pointing ultimately to him. Here he is, loving his own to the end, and he goes, stoops down, and he serves them by cleaning their feet off. Uh, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Where does this service part come in? Is it someplace in the Old Testament? Some of you are going, yeah, get there. Please get to Isaiah 52 at the end and 53, because that's where it is. So let's read that passage. I've read it before. Listen to these words. Behold, this is Isaiah um, 50, Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant, okay? In the New King James Version, both my, this would be Yahweh, and servant are capitalized. Interesting. My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any, more than any man, and, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now my soul is troubled. Remember that in John 12? He was contemplating the events that were going to occur. And we... As, and we hid it, and, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. There's connections with previous revelation there. You can also hear Peter talking about Jesus, exhorting the Christians to be good citizens in the world in which they lived. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. 
For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. During his time on the earth, our Lord was a servant, descent means his state of humiliation. Ascent means his state of exaltation. For us men and for our salvation, he came down. He became one of us. That which is not assumed is not repaired. He assumed our nature to repair it and bring it to glory. This scene before us in John 13 is packed with theology. I could spend months and months here. God the Son is indicating his incarnation, his sufferings and glory, and the benefits that come to us. And also, he's indicating to us that great redemptive acts and deeds can actually not only benefit us as sinners, but as Christians, we can emulate our Lord and ought to the way we love other believers. We'll get to that. Yet while doing so, while indicating his incarnation, sufferings, and glory, there are many practical implications for us, implications that I will point out in future sermons primarily. For the time being, consider this. The acts of our Lord in washing his disciples' feet show us at least three things. So here's our contemplation. I only have one, and then we'll get to the next two later. First, let me say that again. The acts of our Lord in washing his disciples' feet show us at least three things. First, his willingness to take upon himself our nature. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and it's literally, though being rich, yet for his sakes, he beca- yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you might, that you through his poverty, through his poverty, might become rich. But what's going on there? Paul's exhorting the Corinthians to be liberal in their giving, to freely give, and he uses our Lord's being rich and becoming poor as a paradigm, as an example 
for us, that you through his poverty might become rich. His richness is what? His bank account, right? He hit the lotto. What's his poorness? What's his poverty in this text? What he has in common with us? His humanity. His poorness is not just his humanity. His poorness is our humanity, which he became. What's his richness? His divinity. He being rich, remember the James Dolls all thing? Bring the riches, you know. Don't throw aside your divinity and then become one of us because a mere man can't save us. We need something more than a mere man. We need God assuming our nature and bringing it to glory. So this act of our Lord in washing his disciples' feet shows us his willingness to take upon himself our nature. Nothing has come into being apart from him, John 1.3. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh. That's like staggering. What? This person identified as the Word was both with God, a relational term, and was also God himself, the creator of all things, created human nature and plopped it into the womb of the virgin, or used her and... You know, you know how that works. Actually, we don't really know how it works, ultimately. Uh, we just know that it works. He somehow took into himself, unto himself, flesh, bones, body, soul. He was a rational creature, and yet the creator at the same time. Yes? That's why in our culture it's kind of still there. The incarnation is pretty important. It's when we get all the gifts, right? Notice I didn't say give all the gifts. Get all the gifts. His richness is his divinity. His poorness is our humanity, which he became. I think this is an enacted parable of the stooping of, of, of God in the incarnation. I, that's, I didn't make that term up. Somebody else. I think Calvin calls it stooping. Not stupid, stooping, like, because we're creatures. Okay, that's why we have to use language. I, I came, I have come down from heaven. Well, according to your divine nature, no. According to your human nature, no. But something is new with the incarnation, right? And, and the big question is, why did he do this? What is, the, what is the whole purpose for this thing called the incarnation? in order to bring many sons to glory. We, we can't get to glory. We can't get to heaven. We can't get to the eternal state on our own. We, we can do all we want. We can try all we want. We can, we can do all the good deeds, wash, walk all kinds of old ladies across the street, even with our Boy Scout uniforms on. I don't know if they still do that, but it ain't going to get us there. What we need is we need all of our foulness, all of our guilt. Um, we need to be cleaned of that. 
We also need to be spot cleaned afterwards. See what I just did? I'm using the enacted parable. That's what he's going to get to later. Um, but we, we need something else, too. We need, we need to be able to say in the presence of God, I have never once violated the ninth commandment or the tenth commandment or the entire moral law. I have a, a righteousness that's spotless. We can't ever say that unless somebody credits their spotless righteousness to our account. Namely, if God does that by virtue of what Christ did, that's good news. That's why there's an incarnation for exhausting the wrath of God. He suffered. And for upholding the righteous requirements of God, he obeyed. Womb to tomb obedience. That secures benefits for needy sinners like us. Well, may the Lord bless his word. Let's pray and then we'll sing. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It is in its meaning deeper than we'll ever exhaust. We thank you for this section of John's gospel. We just scratched the surface of it, and it is going to lead us into more marvelous things in the future. But we pray that this text that was proclaimed, that uh, to the degree that I accurately explain what's going on there, to that degree, you would burn it into our heads and hearts, make believers to love Christ more. He loved his own, many loved him to the end. And he served us by becoming one of us for us and for our salvation and help us to love him and serve him better and open up blind eyes, unclog deaf ears to hear this good news of the gospel. Now help us to respond as we sing in praises to your holy name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.